What you have tuned into is a Just Jordan standalone sermon. And so we have two weeks before we go outside for four Sundays in June. And Brad asked me to figure out what I want to teach on and teach on it. I could basically do whatever I wanted. And so next week, Brad is uh, his color. What, what do you think his favorite color is? Purple. Purple. See? Did, did, did someone tell you to, because someone gets purple, doesn't Brad just strike you as a purple kind of guy? Like, <laughs> just keep it 100. No, his favorite is blue, which is so boring, you know? Um, but, no, I think he should uh, become a purple guy. But anyway, what's so fascinating to me is, uh, as I was praying and thinking about this message and trying to figure out what I wanted to speak on, there's one topic that kept coming back and back and back and, and all of that fun stuff. But why it's so fascinating is because there's usually three untouchable topics that churches and pastors tend to stay away from. The first is politics. The second is money. And the third is hell. We just did a series for four weeks on money. As a staff, we've decided to avoid politics from a public pulpit for obvious reasons, but have those conversations in private. And today I'm going to be talking about hell and heaven. And why this is so fascinating is because a couple of weeks ago I was having coffee with my friend Colin. And somehow, for some reason, you know, as you do when you're having coffee, the conversation of hell came up. And so we were talking and conversing, and I told him straight to his face, I will never preach on hell. And here I am. <laughs> and so, but it was one of those things where especially my generation has such a bad taste when it comes to the conversation of hell. And rightfully so, the church has really kind of uh, messed up this conversation, and we have... Uh, not just hell, but eternity in general. And so today's message isn't going to just be a topic of hell. That's going to be the first part. The second part's going to be heaven, and the last part's going to be salvation. But, uh, you know, Christians and Christ followers and churches for centuries have messed up this conversation and have been extremely aggressive and abusive and ignorant and arrogant in our theology, our knowledge about hell and heaven. So much so that there are individuals who have taken the easy route to stand on a street corner and scream, you're going to hell, you're going to hell if you don't turn from your ways. In fact, I was driving on my way home yesterday from landscaping, and as I was pulling past Coliseum, there was a lady with a microphone shouting and shouting and shouting about hell and heaven and eternity. And then you've got churches who have held picket signs saying, God hates gays. Turn from your ways. You're going to hell. And we have just really messed up this conversation. Pastors have, Christians have, so much so that it's become an untouchable topic so that pastors avoid it altogether. And we've allowed media We've allowed cartoons, we've allowed different religions and different theologies to seep into what we think about, what we speak about, and how we talk about hell. But to start today, I just wanted to share what my deepest regret is, because I've messed up this conversation before too, many times. And it has influenced and impacted how I think 
and how I share and talk about and what I even believe about hell and heaven and eternity. And so I want you to time travel with me uh, almost exactly a decade ago when I was 16 years old. And this is my deepest regret as a Christ follower. We had just gotten home from a camping trip with our youth group. And so really for my deepest regret, you can just blame Trevor for it. Because uh, <clears throat> we had gotten home from an I am second uh, camping trip that we had done at Channel Lakes. And it was on, I was on fire. I was passionate. I was excited about Jesus and this new recommitment back to God. And I remember um, at Carol, I had a friend who was also new and on fire for God. And so he wanted us to go from table to table at the lunch um, hour, um, sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, and driving people away from their old sin and back to God. And there's one conversation that stuck out to me in particular that I was having with um, an individual. And I approached their table, just asked, like, hey, what do you believe? And and this teenage girl, she shared with me that she believes Jesus exists but wants nothing to do with him or the church because the last time that she went to church was the Sunday directly following after her mother killing herself. She walked into church and shared the pastor, pulled her aside, asked her, hey, why are you here? You're new. I can recognize you like us pastors do. And she said, well, this just happened in my life, and I'm here searching for hope that my mom um, is in heaven. And the pastor turned to her and said, well, I hate to break it to you, but your mom for killing herself is spending eternity in hell. And my deepest regret as a 16-year-old on fire for God was affirming what the pastor said to her. And it's not even something I believe anymore. It was ignorant, it was arrogant, it was thoughtless, it was a sign of someone who had never experienced suffering, who really mishandled a conversation. And my heart breaks for her, and I have hoped and prayed for years and years that that didn't completely ruin her taste for the gospel. And what I've learned from that experience is that what we speak about and say, how we talk about and think about, and what we believe about eternity matters because eternity matters. And so today, we're going to handle this conversation about hell, about heaven, about salvation, about eternity in a really simple way. There are so many books on eternity and so many pastors who have taught on this who go, will go much deeper than what I'm going to go today. But I believe it's important that we talk about eternity so that we don't let outside influences influence us about what we think, speak, and believe about hell and heaven and salvation. And so for today's message, it's going to be broken up into three parts. And there's going to be three different questions that I'll be walking through for today. Questions I've asked myself and possibly you've asked as well. The first is this. If God is loving, why does hell exist? And the root of that question is often stemming from this question, which is if God loves people, why would he send people to hell? That's gonna be part one of the message. 
The second part of the message is going to be focusing on heaven. And it's going to be a question that we're going to be walking through of this. What is heaven going to be like? What is heaven going to be like? All setting us up for the third part of this message, talking about salvation, which is how do I receive eternal life with Jesus? If all of this is real, if hell exists, if heaven exists, if Jesus was not just a real historical human being, but was also the son of God who resurrected, how do I receive eternal life with Jesus? And so that is going to be kind of the roadmap for our conversation today. Here's the deal. If we polled, you know, every Christ follower, even every secular person um, coming to the table, bringing to the table what they even believe about hell and heaven and eternity, you're going to get a thousand million different answers. And the reality is we just don't fully know. We really don't. It's impossible for our human minds to even comprehend what hell will be like, what heaven will be like, and how to receive eternal life and, and what that looks like um, to receive eternal life for those two areas. It's impossible for us to even know what those two places will be like. But here at Crossbridge, we do believe that both of those places exist. And I'm going to be walking through why and walking through um, Jesus' teachings. But before we get to that, I want to actually walk through the history for part one of hell. Because it's important for us to understand the oral tradition, the historical tradition, how hell came to be. Because believe it or not, Christianity did not invent hell. It, it wasn't for hundreds and hundreds of years where the idea of an afterlife and a hell-type afterlife even came into existence. And so I want you to time travel with me even further back. You've got the Egyptians who would embalm their, you know, their, their leaders and their, their people you know, because of this concept of afterlife and what that looked like and not to be um, tampered with after death. You've got the Greeks with their gods of Hades, the ruler of the underworld. The Egyptians, the, the Greeks, you've got the Philistines and the Babylonians who all believed certain things and certain historical things about the afterlife, about hell, about heaven, about eternity, about God. And then you've got the Israelites who come into the picture. And here's what's so fascinating is the word hell, this four-letter word, doesn't appear a single time in the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible. Instead, it's this word, Sheol, which is often translated as grave. In fact, I want to put up Job chapter 7, verse 9 here on the screen. This is what is often used to talk about hell in the Israelites in the Old Testament. It says this, Job writes, As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return. And that word grave that we translate in English is the Hebrew word, Sheol. And Sheol literally translates in the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, as grave, gravesite. And so in its literal sense, it was after you died, you went to the grave, okay? But in its figurative and in its metaphorical sense, what the Israelites believed about eternity and about hell was it was actually a place where we became ghost-like individuals and where you could see other people, but you couldn't interact, you couldn't have fellowship. And so what turned into their theology was that it was this place, that Sheol was this place where there were ghost-like human beings who were powerless, 
who were darkened, who were saddened, who were um, experienced destruction, and it was a very doom-like type place, a very grieving-like type place. And that was their understanding, the Israelites, the Jews, in the Old Testament of what hell would be like. Jesus then enters the script, and it's a completely different picture and idea that Jesus presents in the New Testament. And in fact, what's so crazy about the belief about hell, excuse me, is that Jesus in the New Testament talked about hell more than any other person more than any other individual. I believe the word hell in the New Testament is referenced about 13 times, and 10 or 11 of those times are from Jesus himself, where he's sharing parables, he's sharing stories, he's talking about hell, he's talking about this place. An example of this is one that we might be familiar with. It comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, following the Beatitudes, where Jesus is sharing a sermon on the mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is actually believed to be a collection of different sermons with different topics, different things. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, talking about adultery and um, sexual immorality. He says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this English word hell in the Greek, which is uh, what most of the New Testament is translated as, is not the word sheol. It's a completely different word. It's this Greek word Gehenna. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. And Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, was a literal place that Jesus is referencing found on the southwest side of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem. It was a literal place. And what's actually crazy about this place is for the Jews, they would have immediately, when they saw and heard this English word for us, hell, they would have gone back to the horrors of Gehenna. I actually have a picture here that I want to show you on the screen. This is Jerusalem in the background. And then you see this kind of dead zone, this dirt zone, where there's nothing built, nothing growing on, and it has a little dip. This is the Ben Hinnom Valley. And this is actually Gehenna, the literal place of hell that Jesus is referencing when he's talking to the Israelites and the Pharisees and saying, hey, if you're going to sin, it is better for you to cut off the part which you're sinning and throw it into this valley. And here's why this is so relevant for their culture is because Gehenna was a literal place where hundreds of years before Jesus was walking the earth, where individuals would sacrifice their children to their gods. This exact place. They would sacrifice their child as offerings to their gods and burn them alive. It was a hell. It was a terrific, uh, terrific, horrific thing, terrifying thing, and eventually became banned. And so then what it turned into was a waste site where people would drop their sewage, their dead individuals, their relatives who had passed, their rubble, their rubbish, and it would constantly be burning. It smelled awful. It was horrific. And it was just outside the walls of Jerusalem. But it was a literal place. And so when Jesus, every time Jesus talks about hell, he references this word, Gehenna. 
to show the Israelites that hell is the worst thing that you could possibly imagine, which was Gehenna for them. But when you're looking at the two side by side, you've got Sheol in the Old Testament, which the Israelites originally believed was just this kind of ghost-like grave site where you walked the earth or you walked the area and you couldn't interact with people, but it was a powerless place. And then you've got Jesus talking about this place of fire and of destruction and even of torment. And so you've got these different pictures where media has then seeped its way into the different words and the different beliefs and asked, so what will hell actually be like? What is hell? And our elders and our staff, we got together and we kind of came up with this is what we believe here at Crossbridge. Hell will be a place where there is complete separation from God, from Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Complete separation. So if hell is a place of complete separation, then heaven is a place of complete unity. But if this definition of hell doesn't scare you or you don't think it's far enough or we don't go far enough, one of our um, elders, Nathan, shared this just intelligent thought on Wednesday when we were processing this material. And we were, and he said, you know, if, if this doesn't scare you, just think about life without the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. All of that will be gone in hell because it is completely void of the Holy Spirit. And he said, if that doesn't scare you, then I honestly don't know what will. And here's where Christians and pastors have dropped the ball. It's because we've used fear as a means to try to convince people to turn from God which never works. We've used fears, I mean, sorry, to turn from hell towards God, which never works. And Brad and I talked about this concept last week when we were discussing about fear and conviction is God will convict us, um, sorry, guilt and conviction. God's not gonna guilt you into running and fleeing from a life of hell. He's going to convict us and say, hey, there is a better place. But it causes us to ask this question. If God is loving, then why does hell even exist? And furthermore, if God loves people, why would he send people to hell? And there's two reasons the Bible says. The first is this, to punish Satan. And this is probably a reason all of us can get behind. To punish Satan the one who is in charge of our suffering here on earth, punish him for eternity. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, this is where John writes this. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. That's the lake of hell, the, the, the lake of Gehenna, Gehenna, this, this burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell exists, first and foremost, to punish Satan. But then there's the second reason that a lot of us kind of cringe towards when thinking about a loving God, and it's this. Hell exists to punish sin. Hell exists to punish sin. And this comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He says this, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, here's what we believe as a Christian church is that God is holy. And this word holy kind of encompasses the full character of who God is, but it is, as humans, we're incapable of understanding that full capacity. But some of the things included in holiness are love, mercy, joy, grace, truth, gentleness. But it's also this four-letter word that a lot of people try to avoid, and it's the word just. Because God is a holy God, he cannot let sin go unpunished. And very rarely will a pastor say that God can't do something. But when it comes to holiness, if God is fully holy, then he is fully just. And he will not let sin go unpunished. Now, here's the clear thing that we have to distinct. God doesn't send people to hell. God has presented us with a choice and an opportunity with free will. And this concept of free will is so fascinating because when we are on the benefit and the blessing side of free will, we love it. But we're on the punishment side of free will, we can't stand it. Or Or on the suffering side of free will, where our actions have provided consequences, we can't stand it. It's the same thing with kids. It's the same thing when they stick their hand in the cookie jar or when they touch the hot stove. You know, sometimes you have to let your kid, your child, fail and fall. And you're like, why didn't you stop me? But then when we're on the flip side of it, the reverse side, the blessing side of it, it becomes so much easier for us to get on board. Because at the the end of the day, we truly don't want a dictatorship as a God unless it involves our suffering. But God, in his leadership, provided an out where he placed Jesus, his son, on a cross so that we could experience eternal life. And so part two of this message today, we're gonna talk about heaven. We're gonna talk about heaven. And as I was thinking and reading and processing this message, this psalm came to mind, which was so fascinating. And I have to imagine that the psalmist that David is writing this, he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, Verse four, what is mankind that you, God, are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. It's this picture of heaven. It's this picture of heaven where David is writing and he's elaborating again, trying to understand what heaven will be like, what paradise will be like. And he says, the moon and the stars you've created, I can visibly see this physical creation and it is beyond my understanding that you, God, would create someone like me. So question number two, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? be like? And it's a question when Jesus was walking the earth. It's actually the concept of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is the number one thing that Jesus spent the most of his time talking about when he was teaching and preaching. Number two was money and finances and management, which we just did a series about, hashtag ad. Number one, though, was the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And it's so incredible to be able to talk about this in paradise as a pastor. But when Jesus was talking to his followers and his Pharisees and the Israelites in the New Testament about this incredible place of celebration and of worship, he spoke in parables. 
In fact, Matthew chapter 6 is filled with quite a few of them where Jesus compares the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven to like that of a fishing net that you throw into the lake. Or he says that the kingdom of heaven will be like a mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven will be like a farmer who is really good at farming and sowing crops and sowing seed. And we in our 21st century Western Christianity are like, what? (laughs) What will heaven be like? And so I wanted to make it relevant for our culture today. Imagine a McDonald's where the ice cream machine never broke. That's heaven. Or for Bradley, imagine a Walmart where every grocery line is being used and worked. Okay, a lot of you didn't get that apparently because you do all that online ordering now. But there is a place called Walmart where they only ever have three of their 20 lines being used. Heaven is going to be all 20 of them at the same time. It's Chipotle with double chicken. Being able to afford double chicken at Chipotle. It's being able to lose 40 pounds on the Krispy Kreme diet for all my Bruce Almighty fans, okay? Jesus is talking about in these parables, and when he's talking to the Jewish crowd, they would have immediately recognized what he was referencing. You see the mustard seed, when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, see the mustard seed, while being the smallest, when planted in a garden, completely devours and takes over everything in its path and continues to grow and continues to be beautiful and strong and powerful and uncontainable. And who doesn't like going fishing and actually catching fish? Yeah, my man up front. (laughs) And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like throwing your net, he's speaking to this culture that is um, one of their most important ways to have resources to sell and to trade and to eat was catching fish. He's saying, hey, when you throw your net onto the side of the boat, you haul such a large number of fish that you can't even count. That's the kingdom of heaven. So what will heaven actually be like? It's the exact question I asked my professor, my, my, my theology professor at AU, and his answer has stuck with me. He said this, Jordan, I have no idea, but I know that we won't be disappointed. And it was something so simple yet so deep that has stuck with me. Here's the reality. We don't know what heaven will be like but I know that we won't be disappointed. Here's what John writes, 1 John chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But what we know is that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, perfectly holy. Verse 3, all who have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. Part three, as we wrap up, I want to read this verse from 2 Timothy 1.9. This is what Paul is writing to Timothy as Timothy is spending time in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. He says this, Jesus God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus just before the beginning of time. 
Here's what's so cool. Like I said, God has provided a place and an opportunity for us to spend eternity with Jesus. That's a question number three for the last few minutes. So how do I receive eternal life with Jesus? In order to answer that question, I want to turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts um, is often considered, if there was a fifth gospel, the fifth, fifth gospel, it's kind of actually just a part two of Luke's gospel. It was written just as one continuous story where Luke, um, in his gospel, or the historian he, and, and the doctor, he was very analytical. And so he went to go find the evidence, the proof that Jesus was who he said he was. And so right as Luke ends, it actually doesn't end with Luke, I believe, chapter 22. It goes on to Acts chapter 1. It's so fascinating if you read Luke, the last letter, and last chapter in Luke, right into the first chapter of Acts, because it goes side by side. And so he's writing about the early church, the first century Christians, as they are going and spreading and being the mustard seed of the kingdom of God, ushering in the kingdom down to earth. Well, what happens is Paul and Silas end up frustrating a lot of Jews as they are talking about A, B, C, and D, the kingdom of God, Jesus and his resurrection. And so Luke records the time when Paul gets arrested. He says this in chapter 16, verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Let's just stop there for a second. What an incredible picture is that Paul and Silas are in prison and they're singing and praising God with hymns. And here's what's so cool. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked this exact question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And he's begging them, he's saying, hey, you and your entire household have an opportunity to be saved with belief. And actually the next few verses, Paul and Silas then bring together this jailer's household and they all commit their life to Jesus and then they wanna take their faith public. So they go and be baptized. And it's this incredible passage where the last verse, verse 34, I believe says that then the jailer was filled with so much joy because of his belief. And it's because he inherited the Holy Spirit and his joy of the fruit of the Spirit was living and breathing among them. How do you receive eternal life with Jesus? By believing Jesus is the Son of God. But James writes this then. I believe it's chapter two. He says, faith and belief without works is dead. 
And so we know that true believers are also doers and they're builders and they're lovers and they're filled with mercy and they're filled with truth and gentleness and justice because it's easy to believe. It really is. Even the demons believe, James writes, and they shudder because the demons aren't doers. And so God calls us to a life of doing. And here's how I wanna close today with this concept, title of the message, Eternity Matters. How we speak about, think about, and what we believe about, eternity matters because eternity matters. And here's the deal. I, I'm not gonna create, to close today, some extremely spiritual moment, an exciting moment, feel-good moment where I bring Isaac up to play the keys and make me sound all cool and the words don't even matter because Isaac's playing incredible notes. no. None of that would be real. I just want to say this. Jesus loves you. And he really wants you to love him back. And in doing so, he wants us to love other people. Here's the reality. I can't prove that hell and heaven and eternity exist. In fact, my generation struggles so much with the existence of hell. 19th century Western theology seeped into America, or Eastern theology seeped into America with this concept of universalism, which is the belief that everyone at the end of the day will get to experience heaven. No matter what you believe, no matter how you act, no matter what you do. And I would like to believe that to be the case. But the text just doesn't show that. And so that is why it's so important that we approach this topic gently and humbly. In fact, wisdom without gentleness lacks humility. And so when we're talking about eternity, we have to be careful. So I wanna close with this thought. Like I said, I can't prove to you any of this exists, but people who are looking for proof are seeking security, not a savior. And that's why faith is so important. Eternity matters. And at the end of the day, you have to decide for yourself that you are going to follow and love Jesus. The free gift that we're all given. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for how you love. Thank you for your just character. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you sent your one son to die, to carry the burden, the sacrificial lamb, to be the final sacrificial lamb needed for our connection to you here on earth. And we have the Holy Spirit to be able to guide us now. But God, you've given us a choice through that sacrifice. You said, hey, you can either follow sin or you can follow the Savior, but you can't do both. And because, God, you are just and holy, you've given us an opportunity to spend eternity with you. And Lord, eternity matters because you matter. So God, I just pray that we would lean into you, that we would love you, that we would learn from you and give our life to you. In your name I pray, amen.